It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 20, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. My guest today is Pete Johnson of Pete's Greens up in the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont. Pete farms 90 acres of vegetables. He's got three undercover and an additional 130 acres in hay and cover crops. Sells his crops through a CSA and farm stores as well as through wholesale markets. In this episode, Pete shares his strategies for extending the season with roots as well as green storage in addition to winter growing. We also get into Pete's efforts to develop some new weed control strategies on his large-scale farm to help mitigate risk with the changing climate. In other words, out of control weeds without constantly having to cultivate. Also, we talk about managing employees and projects and scaling equipment for your operation. This was a fun interview with one of my favorite farmers. I hope you enjoy it. Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Osborne Seed Company, founded by seed professionals and dedicated to serving professional growers of all scales. Osborne Seed provides quality seeds, excellent customer service, and a fantastic selection. OsborneSeed.com. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Fertrell, a friend of nature since 1946. No matter your level of experience, Fertrell has the products and knowledge to help you grow healthy, natural plants and animals. Fertrell.com. Welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast, Pete. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. It's, it's, thanks for making the time here. On a, We're recording this on a Monday morning in early June. That can't exactly be the most convenient time for a farmer in northern Vermont to be to be taking an hour, an hour and a half to do an interview. Well, it's a lot better than April or May. April and May, we're, we're straight out. And by the time we get to June, most of the big crops are in. And plus, it's raining this morning. So it's good timing. You said you guys just came out of, of a, a long stretch of really dry weather. And then and now you've been getting getting kind of hit with some some pretty serious rainstorms. Yeah, it seems to be the new reality. We have extended periods of one way or the other, and uh, I would prefer the dry. Um, we, we're kind of in the hills here. It's cooler than lots of places, and we always seem to get enough water somehow. Somehow we have enough. We have high organic matter in our soils, and but when we get too much rain, it's it's tough. We uh, we have various fields that suffer in various ways. So, Pete, tell us a little bit about about Pete's Greens. Give us give us the lay of the land up there in the Northeast Kingdom. Well, we're in Cranberry, Vermont. We're we used to call ourselves solidly Zone Three. I don't know if we're quite that anymore, but uh, three and a half to four most years, I guess. We're at 800 feet in elevation on our home farm. We grow in lots of rented land around the area, up to about uh, 1,500 feet elevation or so. Um, we have sandy loam, river bottom soils here at home, and then varying degrees of heavier, stonier land as you go up in the hills. We're currently cropping about uh, 90 acres in vegetables, and we have three acres under cover, various types of tunnels and greenhouses. And we have another 130 acres in hay or cover crop preparing for vegetables. Uh, we've been working hard on a big rotation the last two, three years. We have a year-round CSA with uh, 450 to 650 members, depending on the time of the year. We have two retail stores, and uh, we go to one farmer's market, and then we sell to a whole bunch of stores and restaurants all over Vermont, and also now some in uh, New York and Boston. Um, we got a crew of, we're probably going to peak at about 30 this summer. Um, about five or six of us are sort of year-round 
managerial. Some of us are, you know, there, there are definitely folks here that are lifers that are not me. There's, you know, four or five of us that plan to be here forever. And, uh, then we have probably six or eight or 10 other local folks. And we have, a mostly Mexican, but some Puerto Rican crews that come in seasonally and uh, a couple families from Mexico we've been working with for a number of years. They come on the H2A visa program and we would really struggle to do what we do without these guys. They're, they're, uh, they're awesome. And they, they really keep us clicking along. Um, we have uh, probably the core of our business now is storage crops. We, we grow, all the crops you can store and store them in a, we have a pretty good size storage facility and sell them year round. And that's really a much bigger part of our year round business now than uh, winter greens. So these are things like the carrots and the, and the beets and potatoes. Yeah. Carrots, beets, potatoes. We're, we're doing a lot with even greenery in the fall, storing it as long as we can. We found kale and chard, things like that. We can store for two or three months if it goes in the cooler healthy enough. Really, tell me how that works. Are you just are you bunching it and putting it in the cooler? No, typically we 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 do it loose in various ways. Like kale, we'll take the whole plant. Um, chard, will <clears throat> will cut a whole plant and and lay it in. We're still learning a lot about it. It's kind of a some years it works great, other years it doesn't work that well. And we find that coming out of our tunnels, it works better than out of the field. I think there's lower bacteria count maybe on the tunnel stuff. I would um, imagine that that foliar foliar disease or that foliar uh, uh, microbiome, it probably makes a huge difference. Yeah, they got to be really healthy and and really clean and and then really well hardened off. It it only works with crops that have, you know, you know how chard gets a little bit, I don't want to say leathery, but on the tougher side as it goes through the cold periods of the fall, it needs to be in that, in that stage. Um, and then the cooling has to be, you know, how it's held in the cooler has to be just right. Like we've put it in bins that were too big and it didn't hold well. Um, some things like to be ice, some things don't. We're learning about that. It's really a a uh, topic that could use some real research because it's very promising. Um, but there's lots of variables, just like with many things that we do. Well, when you talk about getting two or three months of additional storage on those greens, I mean, that's really a whole new... That's a whole new um, it's a whole new enterprise, really no, compared to the compared to the roots. I mean, it's right. one thing to be selling kale and Swiss chard, another thing to be trying to get people to eat more celeriac. Right, and we find that having enough green, I'd say the greenery lubricates the sales of the root crops. Like we have to have enough greenery of some sort. Like I don't think we really make any money growing our winter greens in the greenhouse. Um, maybe a little, but it doesn't seem like it's a particularly profitable enterprise, but. Uh, you know, if it helps you sell your hundreds of thousands of pounds of stored root crops, then it's totally worth it. Yeah, we really found that with the CSA that when we when we could put in an, an eight ounce bag of spinach in January, that it really increased the perceived value of the rutabagas. Yeah, it's 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 that way with the CSA, and it's also that way with wholesale customers. You know, we have we have stores and restaurants that won't bother to deal with us just because they have lots of people they buy from if all we have is storage crops. I mean, we have plenty that deal with us even with storage crops, but if we have greens available as well, we're more of a one-stop local food shopping enterprise and, and they'll buy a bunch of storage crops from us too. So our wholesale sales manager is always pushing to have greenery available to him so he can sell the, the, the roots. 
with a farm your size, uh, you just mentioned that you had a wholesale sales manager. I mean, you you must have people who are, I mean, that's their primary job on your farm, you know, selling the CSA shares or selling the selling wholesale. Uh, that's a really interesting dynamic compared to, to being, you know, at my scale where, um, you know, even with 20 acres of vegetables, where it was a really, it was a Chris does it all kind of a thing. Yeah, it's things that things are pretty uh, parceled out, and that's been a you know this business is 17 years old now, and it started as tiny as you can start on a quarter acre on my parents' land, and so I've experienced every every scale on the way, and I've really enjoyed. I like change in my life, so I've really enjoyed the process of of seeing things change and grow, um, and sort of recognizing the benefits and the drawbacks of each scale and, and every scale has significant benefits and significant drawbacks. And there certainly are disadvantages to the scale we're at now compared to half the size or a quarter of the size. Um, and there's also things about it that are really nice. And well, one of, one of them is that, you know, I, I don't tend to focus on things that I'm not that good at anymore or, uh, things that I was really sort of letting us down on. And we have people who are, who can like sell in different departments and take care of things. And that's nice for me to be able to focus on things that I'm, I am really good at and particularly interested in. And those things tend to change over time too. Like there's something I might focus on a lot for a year or two and then sort of get it set up and going. And I tend to be the enterprise developer. So I'll get something going and then it'll pass on to somebody else and I'll be on the next project. Um, so it's been a, but having the, the right people in place to take care of all those things is certainly critical to success. That's really kind of a, it, it resonates with me. Have you read that book, The E-Myth by Michael Gerber? No. Yeah. He, he, you know, he talks about that as this idea that, that the entrepreneur's job is to, is to go and, and innovate and develop the systems, you know, do the, do the, well, to develop the systems and then, and then to hand them off to somebody else, you know, you figure out the way to do it and then let somebody else have it and go on to do some, you know, innovate another, innovate in another area. So, yeah, it's, it's fine. It's pretty hard to find people who actually want to develop something new from scratch. Um, if they do, they typically want to do that for themselves. So, um, right. We, we're now at the point where we have a team that really helps with new projects a lot, but I would say that, significantly I'm still the instigator and the and the one that really formulates them. You know what I'm looking for now and and I just put the word we have a list serve in Vermont, are you aware of that? Our veg and berry is that through NOPA? No, we have a Vermont Vegetable and Berry Association, which is a really great group. We have a a list serve and an extremely powerful tool. You had you have to join the organization in order to be in the listserv, so it's positive membership to just skyrocket because nobody wants to miss out anything. So, right. So the other day I just posted that I, you know, I'm, when I travel around the world and go to places where they really have vegetables and they they can have crop consultants and scouts show up on a moment's notice or on a regular schedule. I'm really jealous of that, and I, we could really use that. And I said, is anybody doing that around here yet? And and uh, Nobody really is, and I got uh, you know definitely other farmers that are interested as well. But that's the kind of thing somebody at our scale we're really ready for, and we'd have to go two and a half hours away in Quebec. I'm actually looking into it now. Didn't somebody to come regularly from up there because we just don't take a walk through the fields. Yeah, we're just not keeping up, and we're not. 
you know, there's new organic pools every year, and you know, I don't make it to all the conferences anymore, and I, I just don't keep up. And I don't really have like a real hot shot grower working for me. So it's that I could I could spend a lot of money per hour for somebody who was really good at coming in with good information that was easy for us to grab onto and use. Uh, it'd be worth a ton. As, as you're out and about, if you encounter any development like that in our sort of world, because the folks in Quebec, they're going to be coming from a very sort of mini California type world up there, right? Um, which is cool. There's a ton to learn from that, but it's also pretty different as far as, I mean, we're generalists. We do a moderately good job on lots of different things. And up there, they're doing a incredibly good job on the few things they grow more focused yeah. yeah so there's a lot to learn from that but there's also points where you just can't afford to get that into one thing so it seems like it's t- there's t- it's time for somebody to start offering this sort of you know 40 crop model that we're all locked into like some sort of regular scouting or consulting or something where somebody could buy in for like, you know, two hours a week or three hours a month or just something to sort of, you know, get you going and get you moving to the next level. Putting putting another set of eyes on what's going on in your growing world. Yeah. And then if that, if that person is traveling around to, you know, 30 different farms, it gets a little dicey and you can't really say, Hey, I saw this at so-and-so's place, but they're what they see is going to be informing them. And we have that in Vern Grubinger, but he's one guy for, I don't know how many growers there are in Vermont now, but there's a ton of them. So I had a, yeah, I had a hundred people at the workshops that I did there. So yeah, I mean, no, you've got it. Yeah. Like you say, it's a ton. So Vern is just like this. He's just like this rat on a, on a wheel trying to keep up, you know, he's, a, he's amazing, but he's, I try not to bother him because he's way too busy. <laughs> I mean, we, we need we need like five or six more people like that who are out and about, and and it's you know I think it's time for some of us to be paying for the service. We don't have to get it for free. Well, and I think that's the real again. That's the trick, and I think where where there would be potential for something like what you're talking about is that you by the time you say have somebody pay, you know that whoever's out there giving the advice is or whoever's getting the advice is actually going to use it. It's going to be actionable. They're going to do something with it. But there's, I mean, there's such a cult of, uh, not, po- not poverty exactly, but not, not paying for certain things in this world or parts of this world. That it's kind of a cultural, just like we all start all of our own seeds, which in Europe, nobody starts any of their own seeds. It's, it's, and the same is true in California. Exactly. Yeah. So if you if you wanted to start a greenhouse growing starts for people in Vermont, which I think is probably only a few years from actually really happening, it would be a hard slog at first because everybody is used to going to the seed catalog and buying their own seeds and starting their own seeds in their little greenhouse. And, you know, it's just like what everybody does. It doesn't mean it makes sense, but that's just what we all do. And we're not used to paying for somebody to come to our farm and help us farm better even though it could be 1% of your budget and help you make a 10 or 20% improvement, you know? Well, it's like buying that one piece of equipment, you know, those, I mean, I just helped a farmer out here, picked up a, we picked up a mechanical salad harvester. Yeah. And it's like, 
you know, he's going to, he's cutting his labor bill by a, for just the bill alone on, on doing South greens harvest by us in to a sixth of what it was by hand. What, what brand? Um, Ortomac or something else? It's an Ortomac. Yeah. Or did you find yeah, it used or? No, we just bought it from Sutton Ag. Yeah, good. Um, you know, and it's, it's their, it's the smallest one they make. Yeah. It's not the, it's not the little hand pushed one, right. but the, the smallest tractor mounted one. Yeah, that they I had make. one of those for 10 years and it was the cat's meow. We got it. Why'd you get rid of it? We went to a wider bed just to, for, okay. for fewer tractor passes on the whole farm. We went to the California 80 inch centers, but I actually miss. So now I have a wide one, but I missed the narrow one and it was, it was awesome. Yeah. The thing's just, I mean, it's a, it, I mean, it was amazing to see it work. And, and I was one of those things I looked at and went, I would never have put that even as a, even as somebody who felt okay about spending money most of the time on my farm, I would have never put that into my farming operation, you know? Um, and yeah, and I looked at it and I was like, wow, everybody, if you're growing salad greens, you got it. This is why this is why we're competing with $2 a pound salad greens coming out of California. I used mine for 10 years and sold it for more than I paid for it. Of course, you know, really? there was inflation along the way, but yeah, I mean, it's like, I think I paid 15 for mine and sold it for 17. And the guy who got it was tickled. I mean, they don't wear out. There's nothing wrong with it. You know, it's like sits undercover the whole time. I use it twice a week for two hours and wash it off every time. And <laughs> it'll be fine in 40 years. There's not nothing going to go wrong with the thing. Yeah, there just aren't even that many moving parts to it, really. No, and we we picked up a couple wide ones out in California and that had been, you know, through the ringer out there for 15 years and, you know, replace a bearing occasionally. There's just, yeah, there's nothing to it. And they don't look as pretty. They've been out in the weather and stuff, but they, they're, they're a nice piece of Italian engineering and, and built just to the right level of ruggedness and really I, I visited the factory in Italy and it's totally cool just they because they make like self-propelled ones and every sort of version you can imagine and they have it seems like they built they build them to order so they had like 10 different things just being finished up in the factory the factory is like you know 10,000 square feet or something like that it's not very big and you can jump on and drive any of them that you want that they're finishing up. So, oh, really? Yeah, it's really cool. <laughs> and it just, it's a family thing, you know? And it, it like the, one of the brothers showed us around on a Saturday and he's like, yeah, drive this one, drive this one. And you could just feel the, you know, the innovation. And, and then they took us, this was the coolest thing. They took us to this farm. They, they make a bunch harvester as well. Right. I've seen that. I've seen that videos of that. Yeah. So it's kind of the same thing with this extra jig on it. And I was toying with buying one and blah, blah, blah. And took us to this Italian parsley farm and they wouldn't let us film it because the farmer was paranoid. I don't know what he thought the big secret was, but there were these two women out there harvesting Italian parsley and it was unbelievable. It was, it was like a two acre field. This was not big. And, but these two women were bringing in just like, like a pallet stacked five feet tall every 15 minutes of this beautiful parsley. And they were cutting this stuff like 10 times in the course of the growing season. And then it was going into this, it wasn't actually bunching it on that machine. It was just cutting it. And then, was being bunched in this other machine that was sort of half manual and 
this one girl was unbelievable at backing this tractor down the beds with his, you know, I had a forklift on the back of the tractor and a three point hitch. So they'd fill up a pallet and they'd drop it off and she would run to this tractor and back it at like 14 miles an hour down the beds. I mean, it was a really impressive piece of driving. Grab it and it was just like, everything was just perfect. And I just stand there watching this and you know, it's a, a crop suited to the country, the climate works well, it was beautiful. These women were having a ball, bringing in this huge amount of it and it was just, I don't know. And then the, you know, the machine was made 10 miles up the road and it was impressive. Did you get a little bit of machinery lost after that? Yeah, I realized that, I mean, we have so much trouble. We were looking at doing bunch spinach for Whole Foods and stuff, but we just have so much trouble with foliage diseases. It's not, it doesn't seem worth it. So I'm curious, was that farm that you were, that you were looking at, was that an organic farm or were they conventional? I think they were conventional. That, that wasn't really, uh, yeah. It was kind of cool too. The guy, the owner was a custom operator. This is a, this is south of Venice. Really interesting little vegetable region. There's a, you know, all the fields are two to, I'd say half to three acres in size. And, but there's enough farms around there that he had like 10 tractors and all kinds of nice implements. And he, like around here, you can hire somebody to come chop your silage. He would go and make beds for somebody or whatever. And I'd seen that in California, but never in a place where the fields were sort of the size of our fields or smaller. And uh, so he had super nice equipment for his own place. And then he had two or three guys out running around doing custom work all the time. And it's just so interesting to see how things work in different places where you, where you have enough density to actually do something. Have you tried any of that equipment sharing? Is that something you've been involved no, in at all? No, we don't really have anybody. We don't have anybody. We went to these wider beds. Everything is, most everything is sort of specific to that. And nobody around here has beds as wide as we do. And we don't have, we don't have anybody of any scale at all within 15 miles. So... I, I think like there's people now talking about getting a rock picker and sharing that there's something like that could work. Something that's a little less, not so much demand to be super timely. Yeah. With it. And then I was looking today, we're, we're, we're doing a lot of breaking sod for, for, you know, vegetables and quack grass is a real problem. There's a Danish machine that, tears it up and flings the rhizomes up on top of the soil. So high mowing seed is, you know, near us and they're taking on a new farm. So I asked Tom if he wanted to go in and buy it with me and he's interested, but they're not really ready. And, you know, I think, I think with them, there could be some potential over time because they're starting to scale up a little bit, but, uh, we're as far as in our neck of the woods, we were by far the biggest, operation. We just have a lot of stuff that we need it when we need it, you know? Right. It's hard to, but I went, I went to a place, I've uh, become a little bit of friends with this guy in Holland, kind of one of the organic pioneers there. And he, um, he went in with five other farms. They're all within about 10 miles of each other and allowed them to go to get GPS on the tractors. So they spent, I think, like 700000 bucks on a bunch of tractors and equipment, and he said it worked great. But it's also a 
you know, it's a different philosophy over there. I said, what, what happens when it's like, you know, April 20th and you all, all need to get something done at once. He says, Oh, we just cooperate, but they're all in a co-op together. And you know, they're, they're a little bit more European. I, I think it take, it would take a special group of Americans to really make that work. Cause, cause this is like all their equipment. It was, it was all basically all their tractors were in this group together. We were all pooled together. Yeah. Wow. So you, you really had to be fully in communication with all the other partners as far as who was doing what, when it wasn't just like, you know, two or three specialized things, but he said that none of them individually could have gone to GPS and then achieved the sort of precision that they did. And he said it was totally worth it. So Pete, tell me a little bit more about these, the 84 inch beds. Cause that's a really wide bed. Yeah. Well it's 80 inch and that's tire center, tire center. And it's kind of funny. And when I, when I started farming, my, my family had this little John Deere 950 tractor and, uh, I just started, I bought a tiller for it. And then I bought maybe the green harvester was the next thing I bought for it. And, and, uh, it it was a very narrow tractor, so I ended up with uh, you know a 36 inch bed top, and that lasted until five years ago. And all of a sudden, we were growing I don't know 60 acres or something like that on a 36 inch bed top because we just started buying the stuff for it. And all of a sudden, we had you know a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of equipment set up for this. And then I was just like, this is crazy. We could be driving our tractors so much less. So. We went to Cal. We looked around in the east. I thought, you know, we could go to New York State or somewhere like that and find a density of used equipment where we could get stocked up, but just couldn't. There just wasn't enough stuff. So we went to Salinas and uh, filled three trailer loads with basically California castoffs. It was tractors and implements and greens harvesters and all kinds of stuff, toolbars and. A uh, couple big purchases and then some Craigslist stuff out there too and filled these three trailers, Isaac and I, um, my, my buddy, um, in a week and uh, shipped it all home and basically set us up for a whole different world and we've really enjoyed the efficiency that's come from it. Um, it's not without... It can be a little bit of a hassle at times. Like the, there's times we wish we could do something a little bit narrower, but we've been really strict about keeping everything except for potatoes on that 80 inch centers and all of our cultivations done on the 80 inch. Some people back here in the East, they have 80 or 84 inch centers, but they cultivate it on a half width. Right. So they use Kubotas to, to cultivate like a 40 or 42. and. We just found that to be the the kind of inefficiency we're trying to get away from. So we sold all our Kubotas and we have basically one cultivating tractor that we bought out there that's a Ford that straddles the whole thing and and we just switch around tools on it and it's I think that the quantity of work we get done with, you know, relatively few highly skilled tractor people um has really paid off. And uh I think we're probably two or three years away from trying to figure out how to get, get to GPS so that we can do things really arrow straight. We spent a lot of time working on driving straight because it really influences everything else, but we're, you know, farming hillsides and all kinds of crazy stuff. And, uh, 
there's times when our cultivator, who's my brother, Andrew, is not as pleased as he could be. And he is the key. He does all of our cultivation on all of our crops and uh, having him be happy is extremely important. So, and I assume his happiness is probably tied to how, how good of a job it's possible to do. Exactly. So if, if we do a really good job setting up the beds and planting whatever we're planting and with weed control ahead of time and he can cruise through and do his best job, he's psyched. And if he's like trying to pick up our pieces, you know, once you screw up some part of that, the rest of it's very difficult. Um, we're also trying to, you know, reduce the time he spends, you know, any kind of weeding, be it mechanical or, or especially by hand is really not a productive use of resources. So part of our big rotation we're working on now is, is just reducing all sorts of weeding. Um, so we're spending more time doing things that are more focused on building soil fertility or um, harvesting or, or whatever it may be that actually makes money or is building for the future rather than just maintaining. And you talked earlier about how you're widening out your rotation um, or trying to lengthen it. And are you going to one of these programs where you've got ground that's just dedicated to cover crops for a year or two at a time and then rotating into crops and then back out into cover crops again? Yeah, we're, um, we're, we're basically going into, into some sort of hay crop for two years, like a high legume hay mix. And we have a pig operation. We're feeding pigs with it, but we're, we have way too much hay for the pigs now. So we're probably going to be getting beef cows and, it's seeming like this is this is new. We're just buying equipment for it and getting set up now, but we're going to start doing a lot of growing straw and or other kinds of green material, possibly these same high legume haze, and chopping them and spreading them as mulch over vegetables. We're building a building a, a rig where we'll pass over a vegetable bed and basically cover the vegetable rows and then the, the chopped straw will rain down over that. Um, and we're hoping to get set up so we can, we can basically mulch half or more of our total acreage. It doesn't work with all crops. doesn't work with salad greens, for example, but most of the rest of it, it works fine. And, uh, we think it's going to really help, you know, obviously with moisture retention, it'll help build fertility. And uh, we have a lot of splashing that leads to foliar diseases in this climate. We get a lot of hard thunderstorms, and I'm hoping it's going to really have a significant effect on that. Not to mention we're, we're farming some land that is steeper than we'd prefer to be on, but it's what's available around here. And so getting a mulch on that will be a really positive from a erosion standpoint as well. So it's early stages, but we're, we're equipped now with both land and equipment to actually make really large quantities of this, of this mulch material. And, uh, I'm really excited. I think it's, I think it's the big next step for us. And we haven't really seen how to crack this whole no-till organic thing that some folks have been working on with in our climate with the kind of land that we have it hasn't seemed and the kind of crops that we're growing especially with a focus on early crops it it hasn't seemed that plausible for most of what we grow um but uh getting a mulch on fairly early in the cropping season with a bunch of crops it does seem quite plausible so I'm hoping that in two years we really have a, a system 
pretty well figured out that we're covering most of our, you know, at least half or more of our ground pretty early on in the vegetable cycle. That's really cool. That's a, I mean, you know, you, you are, you always think of mulching as being a, a smaller scale thing. And you're, I mean, if you're talking about half of your ground, you're looking at 45 acres in mulch. Yeah. And it's, and it turns out we, we got hanging equipment last year. It turns out we really like hanging. <laughs> so it's sort of, uh, it's sort of going along well with that. And my, I tell my brother, the goal is that he spends more time hanging, less time cultivating because, Hey, you're kind of bombing around gathering up this resource and cultivating. You're doing this tedious work trying to kill weeds and not kill your crop. And obviously we'll always be cultivating on some level, but, uh, the, and, and we've also always struggled with this idea of, you know, you cultivate, you keep your crop really clean early on. And then a lot of crops take a long time to mature and, become difficult to cultivate at some point. And even in super clean ground that we've done a great job on where we have weeds eventually go to seed is in these long-term crops where we just can't really get in there for the last two months, for example. And so mulching entirely solves that along with a host of other things. So the math I've been doing sort of on the napkin is that we could invest a significant amount in this and it would really pay off. It's going to be really interesting to see if the, if the potential disease, um, you know, helping with the foliar diseases actually pans out as I'm hoping it might, because that would be a huge extra, you know, factor in the whole thing. Yeah. Those are such a challenge. I mean, it's, it's like the, it's like the Italian, uh, bunch harvester that you were talking about earlier with the parsley. If you, you know, whether you're doing it by hand or, or doing it mechanically, getting that level of efficiency is really dependent on not having those foliar diseases be present, not having to do the quality control. Totally. Yeah. If you can grow clean stuff, it doesn't really matter so much how you deal with it and you're going to do okay. But if you're having problems in it, you know, these, these climates we grow in are ridiculously variable. As I was telling you earlier, we had virtually no rain here for six weeks since the snow melted. And now it has rained here virtually, well, it's rained eight out of the last 11 days. And a couple of days we've gotten two to three inches in, in a day twice. And right now it's misting. And, you know, it's just like, my crops went from looking dry but beautiful to now somewhat waterlogged and the problems are already starting. And and yet, you know, next year could be the complete opposite. And so just figuring out a system that, you know, it maybe isn't perfect for everything all the time, but covers as many bases as you can just seems so important in a climate like this. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, well, anything you can do, I mean, the, the reason they grow it in California is because it's, it's a heck of a lot easier than it is to do it in Northern Vermont. And, you know, anything you can do to cut down on that, that variability, because that's, that's the big thing you have when you're farming in a desert is complete control. Right. I remember I visited Yuma, Arizona, which is where they grow the greens in the winter uh, about 12 years ago and got to ride around with a farmer for the day. And he said, yeah, once a winter it rains and it screws up everything. 
Yeah, I said, how much does it rain? So it's like a half inch. And so it just, it messes up our whole schedule. We can't get anything done for a week. It just throws everything into, <laughs> just like, wow. <laughs> because his whole world is, you know, they got the irrigation. When you irrigate constantly, it's just part of life. And you don't think about it. And it allows you to schedule things just as you want. And, you know, it was just, it was just an amazing thing to hear. Well, you really do have the ability to do everything on a calendar. Yeah. I mean, we're, you know, and, and, and again, if you cut down that variability, even things like how long is it going to take us to harvest a thousand heads of lettuce? Just, you know, it, it, I mean, if, if you've got butt rot, it takes a lot longer than it does if you've got nice clean fields. And yeah. even those, that kind of variability makes stuff difficult to plan. How many people are we going to need to have? How long is it going to take? What are we going to be able to get done afterwards? Um, you just don't really know for certain. And, you know, you, when you cut that out, suddenly it becomes, it takes this long to harvest a thousand heads of lettuce. Yeah. You know, I mean, much less the idea that you can plant when you want, cultivate when you want. We, you know. Yeah, it's interesting. In California, they, they tend to not have actually mechanized as many things as you'd think. Like a, a lot of the harvesting is still very much hand labor based. And my impression is just that unlike Europe, where I think the cost of labor is just high enough where they've really had to work on machines for a lot of these things in California, it just works with using the relatively inexpensive Hispanic labor and the climate's really consistent and it just pencils out and there hasn't been a lot of incentive to invest in technology and it's kind of neat in some ways it probably won't last forever I'm guessing that they're going to they're going to have to head more and more in a technical realm but I mean you you go to Holland and you see quite a bit more um, mechanization of harvesting and whatnot than you do in the fields of Central California. It sounds like you've spent quite a bit of time out exploring other farming systems in other parts of the world. Yeah, I have, and I've really, uh, I've gained a lot from it. California, Europe, um, Quebec for sure. I mean, just north of us here in Quebec, there's, we call it mini California. There's there's uh, six or 7,000 acres that's, uh, it's pretty much same system. There's a big baby greens farm there. It's really interesting to spend time there. Um, those, are, those are probably the main ones. I'd like to get to Africa and, and Asia and places further afield. Um, but Holland, I found, if you ever want to go a place where you just see how things are just done spot on perfectly, um, and I, I found it to be the people to be really open and even like you go to equipment dealers and places like that, you can really gain a lot um, in a in a tiny country where there aren't that many people and you can get around it pretty quickly. I, I've really learned a lot over there and, and they really specialize in potatoes, carrots and onions there, which are things that we grow a lot of. So it's, uh, I try to get there every two or three years and wander around and see what's going on. That's really cool. Do you go to the same farms every time or do you just, do you just like show up on farmers doors and knock and like, Hey, I'm here from America. Show me your farm. Yeah, we do a little bit of that. We, we, we generally go as part of a bail BJO is a seed company that uh, I've got to go with Tom Stearns from high among seeds a couple of times. So he's, he's in a partnership with the seed company bail 
And so they have some field days over there, which are spectacular. And then they lead trips out and about. And then they've gotten to the point where we can say what we want to see and they'll set up special field trips for us. And then I've been a couple of times on my own doing things separately. And um, people are really receptive. Um, it's interesting over there. They, you know, it's this country that exports, I think they're the world's largest grower of onions and you know, the highest yields of potatoes and they're really good at growing this stuff. And this whole direct marketing and things like farmers markets and CSAs are really not well developed in Holland at all compared to Germany. So a lot of the larger organic growers sell a lot of their food in Germany, um, which is, you know, right next door, but they always kind of lament that the, the Dutch population is really not, coming along that fast. So I think it's changing some now, but it's it's just interesting to be in a place where things are so well done and so well figured out, and yet the local population is not really interested in the same way that, say, the, the population of Vermont is in local food. Um, it's also, that's sort of the same in Quebec, too. Quebec is, is coming along more now. There's, there's a lot more small farms and whatnot, but they have a real industry there. They grow, like if you go in the grocery store and, and buy potatoes, onions, or carrots, basically year round, they're from Quebec and, and a whole bunch of other stuff too. So I think it's a little bit less remarkable that your neighbor can sell you potatoes in January than in Vermont. When you go in the grocery store in January and buy potatoes, the chain grocery stores mostly have potatoes from places like Idaho. And so it's more remarkable when a local farm has local potatoes in January. So it's kind of a, it's interesting to me that the places where they're actually quite a bit better at this stuff than we are, they don't have the same access to direct marketing or, or they, they don't yet at least. It does, yeah, just because it doesn't have that same special feel. Yeah, to I'm it. not sure that make... that's exactly the reason why or what exactly is all involved. But I know the Quebec growers when they come down here, they're like, "Wow, you know." In Vermont, the, I think much like parts of Wisconsin and parts of you know the, the Upper Northwest, you know, the 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 consumer public is really keen on what's going on, um, and we're just kind of used to that and we don't take it for granted. We appreciate what it is, but it's, it's part of our culture and it's certainly not the case everywhere. It's really interesting. Now you've, you've put a lot of, of time and energy with Pete's greens into developing your local food community and your local food economy there in Vermont. Yeah, we've been, uh, our CSA has, has bought in food from other, other producers for many years and we've really tried to support other growers and, and people producing all sorts of local food to really develop new things. So we like to be guinea pigs where they can send things to our CSA or our stores and see how it works. And, and we've seen an amazing transformation in this state in the last 10 years that I can't even keep up anymore. I can't keep up with who's doing what, where, what they're, what they're making now. And it's just like this runaway train and you go back 15 years and you could really go around the state and say, okay, this person's doing this, this person's doing that. It was really obvious what was going on. There just wasn't that much of it. I mean, there was a lot of it compared to maybe other places, but 
now it's just like things feeding on each other and um, it's been a really fun thing for me to be part of personally and part, fun for our business to be part of. And, um, it, it's kind of hard to imagine where it's going to be in 10 years because there's so much energy and, and life involved in it. And there are some, there's some growing pains. There's been some contractions here and there. Um, some people complain that the Vermont market is a bit tapped out perhaps, of course, like everywhere, it's hard to acquire land or access to land, um, and that limits some things. But we also have some pretty new developments of getting Vermont food to places like Boston, New York, in in significant ways, which wasn't the case three or four years ago. So um, I think the potential is is wide open, and and uh, there's just like a steady stream of new entrepreneurs springing up and doing doing cool things. Why do you think that Vermont in particular has, has fostered that sort of an environment? I mean, this, I know when I go around to, um, and I get all over the country and, you know, people in, in various places are like, wow, you guys have it so good up there in, in Minnesota and the twin cities. And I, I think Vermont is very much like that kind of an environment where local food is, it's, it's an expectation, not just something that occasionally shows up and seems neat. And it's really happening at scale. You know, people, the grocery stores there are heavily invested in it. It's not just bringing in a few things out of somebody's garden. And what, what do you think contributed to that in, in Vermont that it's taken off in the way that it has in the last 15 years? Well, we had something that was maybe a bit unique in Vermont. We had a real back to the land movement in the sixties and seventies where mostly young city people came here and mostly got into sort of like farming or some sort of agricultural type things and mostly didn't continue to do those things <laughs> over time, but mostly stayed here and became professionals or whatever they became and raised their kids here. But it sort of like seeded the area with a group of people who had a certain idea about what they wanted from their life. And then we've continued to have an influx of people. Like I didn't grow up here. I moved here when I was 12 people from outside who come here and like what it is. I mean, it's a, it's a big town, Vermont, 600,000 people. So a, it's easy to, to have everybody hear your message in the state or at least a lot of people. So it's relatively cohesive in that way. And you now we're pretty good at rallying around things that we believe in. And, so I think that the combination of sort of scattering these back of the lanterns all over the the hills here, and then you know the cool things that they ended up doing, and that had a lot of influence over what was already a super agrarian economy. Um, and we don't really have any big industries here. We don't, you know, we don't have a whole lot of big stuff going on. So currently, in my neck of the woods agriculture is the big growth economy. Like we've added a couple hundred jobs within 15 miles of here in the past 10 years and nothing else is adding jobs. So now it's got this energy going where, you know, it's people are moving here specifically to work for these businesses and then they're starting their own business or whatever. Um, so it's this whole new way, but it was sort of, it happened here. I think, significantly in part because of these folks who moved here 30, 40 years ago. And, 
sort of set up a climate that was receptive to it. I like that, 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 that climate of, of receptiveness, I think is really, it really is something. I mean, I do think that, you know, having, um, I don't want to pin it to politics, but, but in general, I think having that, um, having that right, the right social climate, uh, really made it, I think makes a difference with the places that have gotten out ahead on local foods, even though it's, I mean, it's obviously an issue that doesn't, I mean, it can, it can certainly cross political lines, but I think it, it has seemed to be more associated with, uh, with kind of like what you were saying that back to the land crowd, the, the people that are thinking in an alternative fashion, uh, really does help. Yeah. I mean, most of the folks who are coming to a place like this because they're seeking something different. You know, they're, they're coming, they, they were typically not like, they're typically well off young people that somehow were not enamored with their parents' life in some way and wanted to do something different. And, um, almost every one of them can tell you a story about, yeah, I moved here. I started clearing this land. I got a bunch of goats. I got a, this and that and the other. And after six years, I got sick of it and I got a job, you know, and, <laughs> and, but they still have this thing in them and then they have kids and their kids are sort of coming from this different background. And, um, it, it's a powerful thing. And now we're, I mean, now we're into the third generation of, of those folks. And, um, it, it makes for an interesting area. Like it, it makes for some, and then they, the nice thing about Vermont is even the people that we call Vermonters who are people who have been here for generations are known for being very tolerant and very open and, actually interested in the crazy people who move here. So it's a culture in which these different groups of people associate with each other pretty freely. And it leads to some really interesting mixes and cross pollinations and things like that. And it'd be really different if, if there was this really feeling of us versus them, but there, there isn't so much here. And uh, I live in a town that has a, a college and I mean, it's a town of a thousand people has a college and it has an outdoor center that's got an elite group of uh, cross country skiers and rowers that live there all the time. And, you know, that, that's not something that really like the average small Vermont town has. And it's really interesting to see how, and both of these institutions have been here for 30, 40, 50 years now to see how the effect of having all these different people who come here for these two institutions, what that has had on the people who have lived here forever. And they're just, they've sort of been more exposed because they've been around these different groups of folks and the people who come here to like be a professional cross-country ski racer are also exposed to the longtime farmers and loggers and people who've lived here forever. And it makes for a nice combination that, uh, is maybe something you don't get to throw people together so much in other parts of the world because maybe the places are just too big. I don't know. There's something about it where we actually associate with each other here. 
you know, one of the other things that I, I found really cool about Vermont, I, I flew out there to do some seminars in, in March and it was like, as soon as you land at the airport in Burlington, you know, you're in Vermont. Yeah. I mean, there's just, there's just no question about it. And I, I, I've been at a lot of airports. In fact, this last winter where I had a particularly heavy travel schedule and I, I got to the point one time where I was walking through an airport and I, I, for a few seconds, couldn't remember where I was <laughs> yeah. and there was no, and there was no indication, Yeah, you know, but, but like you land in Vermont and there's rocking chairs in yeah. the airport. Yeah. You know, it's like, Oh yeah, I know exactly where I am now. No, we're you know? proud. Every, every, it's really hard to find somebody who's not proud of, of living here. And it's also really hard to, interestingly enough, it's hard to find somebody who will complain about the winter here. Most people really? knew, whether they're new or been here a long time, will say, I like the winter. And they, they seem like they generally do. Like they just, people live here like the winter. And so it's really, it's really fun to live in a place where there's this, this deep seated, genuine pride for where it is. And it's different. It's special. We all know that it is. And, and we all appreciate that. And I, I just feel honored to, be allowed to be here. I mean, it's just really, really fun for me. Pete, we're going to take a pause here and get a word from our sponsors. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Fertrell, a friend of nature since 1946. Fertrell has a full service agronomy department that provides support to their nationwide network of customers, dealers, and distributors. And Fertrell is about far more than just any one type of crop. They work with commodity and forage crops, large scale vegetable and fruit farms, and small scale and backyard growers, as well as livestock producers. No matter your level of experience, Fertrell has the products and the knowledge to help you grow healthy, natural plants and animals. Their full line of soil amendments, dry blend and liquid fertilizers, and weed, pest, and disease control products for organic production means that they can help you to assemble a comprehensive system for organic farming. The Fertrell Company knows that healthy soils are the foundation for healthy crops, not just from a philosophical standpoint or for maximizing nutrition, but also because building healthy soils sets the stage for harvest efficiency, post-harvest quality, pest resistance, and succession planting. Fertrell, better naturally. Fertrell.com. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is sponsored by Osborne Seed Company. Osborne Seed Company is focused on serving professional growers on any scale, from market gardens to commercial scale, organic and conventional growers. With their active sourcing and trialing program, Osborne Seed is able to offer a wide range of products, giving growers a competitive edge with niche products, as well as a greater selection of varieties to meet the challenging and increasingly variable growing and marketing conditions faced by today's growers. I learned about Osborne Seed from one of the fussiest growers I know who recommended them to me as a source of high quality seeds. One of the little telling details about Osborne's dedication to quality and their focus on market farmers is that they pack all of their seeds to order in resealable foil packets, which helps to maintain the quality of the seeds over time. When you grow crops for market and successions throughout the season, you need quality seeds the first time you plant them and the last, and little details like this make a huge difference. Osborne Seed Company, high quality seed and superior customer service. New and existing customers get $5 off the first order of $50 or more when you mention the Farmer to Farmer podcast. OsborneSeed.com. Well, you talk about the winters, and I think this is a nice segue into into something I wanted to make sure that we had a chance to talk about in this in this episode about about your greenhouse side of your operation. We talked earlier about your storage crops, but I think when I first 
Well, the first time I became aware of you, I, there was an article like back in the 1990s in, in Lynn Bozinski's Growing for Market magazine. And, and there was a, it, I think you had written it about the the artwork that your sister had painted on the side of your truck for Pete's Greens. And you know, it, it's always kind of interesting to me, like how, you know, 20 years ago, the idea that you had a painted truck was actually a pretty unique and cool idea, you know? Yeah. And and, um, but you went on and, and to, to do a lot of work with winter production and with, with some greenhouse design. Um, I, I remember being particularly in awe of the, the half acre wooden structure that you put up yeah. on your farm. Can you tell us a little bit more about your, about the greenhouse side of your operation? Yeah, I'd say early on, it was really a, a big focus, um, I had this idea when I first started, I got to know Elliot Coleman, who, who's been a, a really good friend and mentor and that I was going to grow fall, winter, spring and take the summer off. And so I got done with college and moved back to my parents. My parents live up in the hills from here. It's really cold where they live. And I put up a couple of greenhouses and sort of hacked through the first winter and got to May. And I was like, oh, I'm actually selling food now. This is when I'm supposed to stop. <laughs> I, I just realized it wasn't in the cards around here. The difference between zone three and zone five and a half is huge in winter production. And so kind of have been going relatively year round ever since then. Um, but it was always, it was a really early interest of mine. Even as a kid, I would just sort of play around with plastic structures and, and stuff like that. And, and I'd say it's become less of a key part of our business in the last three or four years. We're sort of reinvesting in it now. We're putting up a gutter connect house and, and prepping ourselves to really start taking things to a higher level. But uh, we have currently three acres under cover. Um, two of those acres are a three-season Arnois tunnel um, that are not snowworthy and the rest are various greenhouse designs. Um, some heated, some not. So those, those Arnois tunnels, those are similar to the hay groves, right? Where yeah, it's, a, they're basically, it's a relatively lightweight multi-bay yeah, structure. From my perspective, I've never had a hay grove, but I know people who have the Arnois are considerably stronger. They actually have roll up venting, um, from my perspective, a, a, a somewhat better engineered um, thing. They're also, all of our greenhouses are on Waz and we really like the company. They're out of north of Montreal and a uh, family company do a, do a really nice job. That's all uh, of ours were too. We, we love that company. Oh, you, you really? I didn't think they were so much out where you were. That's how'd you discover them? Uh, well, because I spent a couple of years farming out in Maine and, uh, and got to know them while I was out there. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And, and then, you know, when we looked around at the other options here, uh, there just weren't very many. And, you know, this was back in 1999. The other thing we ran into was that nobody here would build us a mobile tunnel. And with Arnois, we were able to work with their engineers to design the mobile tunnels that we wanted to build. Yeah. From, from what I've seen for the same money, you get a significantly better structure and you have access to you know, these folks up in Quebec, they're, they're smart. They're hustlers. They're smart. And they, they get the job done. We've, we've been pleased over and over doing business up there. And, and, uh, some of their engineering is really clever and their pricing is really fair. And we don't worry about snow on our annual houses. I mean, that's not to say we never clear them, but 
there's not any danger of some snow event bringing them down. They are strong. Yeah. Um, so that's not the case with the, with the tunnel, but, um, we have had a good bit of snow on it. It's been fine, but it certainly wouldn't come through a winter around here. Um, and we found it to be like, like any tunnel, it's, it's quite a bit more maintenance than a regular greenhouse. And more and more we're kind of going away from temporary structures and all, all the sort of hoop things that people are doing now. We're more and more interested in just having proper greenhouses with, with peak vents and things that require less maintenance and less um, attention, the things that just kind of work on their own. Um, so we're, we're adding peak vents to four houses this year. We're raising them up so they're better um, for vining crops. We're putting in the Scudder Connect and just sort of trying to sort of standardize things. And I don't know about you, we find just the maintaining and operation of manual roll-up sides to be a major management thing on our farm. <laughs> yeah. And, and, uh, whereas we have two peak vents that have been working flawlessly now for seven years and require no attention and really minimal maintenance and do a beautiful job venting greenhouses. So the fact that I don't have them on every house is just crazy to me when I, when I actually stop and do the math and think about it. Um, so we're reinvesting now and, and really getting ourselves set up for the next phase. Um, but it's been a key part of our business and it was from the start to have, to have food out of season. And, you know, 12, 15 years ago, there weren't that many people doing it. Now it's almost a de facto part of being a Northeastern vegetable farm. And that's great. I think it's been really good for improving the food supply around here. Um, and it certainly has contributed to the knowledge base. You know, there's really so much more information now than there was back then. And it's so much easier for new folks to get started and figure out how to do this stuff and have a viable business in a year or two rather than hacking along for a while. Well, and I think that year round potential is, is so important if you want to take advantage of it, if it fits with your quality of life goals, that you have that ability to, to not only keep yourself busy and keep cash flowing in all winter, but the ability to keep good people on through the winter time, I think is just enormous. Yeah. The good people thing has been huge for me. I mean, when we, when we actually really committed, this is probably going back now eight or nine years ago to really being in business year round and really having a staff that was with us all the time. It's not without problems, but we have experienced over the years, um, the potential for burnout is much higher when, when you basically finish up around here, November 1st is the end of our outdoor season. The ground starts to freeze year in, year out on November 1st and we're done. And it's always a big push to get done. Like we're you know, getting all these root crops and getting all everything picked, blah, blah, blah. And then the next week we're like, washing and packing and selling stuff <laughs> same as the previous week and there, there's definitely we've gotten better at sort of recognizing how that affects our staff and trying to have enough people around so that we encourage people to go on vacations especially around then and we always have significant changeover around then even with local folks we find that people are just like 
who were looking for sort of an outdoor vegetable farming experience are now needing to do something else for a while. They may come back later, but um, it's it's been there's sort of like a, a seasonality expectation in this business that you don't have in other businesses. And when you sort of get rid of that and need good, solid folks year-round, and I mean, we do three-quarters as much business in our slowest week as we do in our busiest week now. So, you know, we're busy in January. Um, it's You can't just sort of hack along with whoever's kicking around. you got to have a real crew. And... So it's been a, there were, there were two or three years where in November we're like, shit, there's nobody around here who wants to work anymore. And we got to look at this differently in some way. So we've just come to expect some changeover. We tend to do a lot of hiring that time of year. And there's a whole new group of people who are looking for work that time of year we've discovered. So, um, it's probably our biggest point of the year where we bring in new folks who, and some of them tend to rise and, and end up being real stars for us. So you got to, if you're going into it for the first time, or if you're really growing that part of your business, realize that not everybody's going to want to, you know, keep plugging away 40, 50, 60 hours a week through the winter. It's, it's hard and it tends to be wet and damp and cool and not as much fun as picking strawberries maybe in June. Um, yeah. and we're sort of getting to the point where it's, it's actually mostly a different group of people, um, who are focused on the indoor work and just tend to like it more. Um, but it's taken years to sort of understand that and get to, and get through that transition. I, I think especially what you just brought up that, uh, about the end of the season and not having that opportunity to lie on your back and catch your breath yeah. in the first week of November. Yeah. Um, I remember when we when we got into the herb packaging business, you know, Thanksgiving was the big week for us. And so we similarly got out of the field at around around November 1st and then it was it was straight into the Thanksgiving rush yeah. after that. And it, and it really did it really changed the pace and the pattern on the farm at that time of year. And really it, it did some, it, it took a lot of adjustment for me uh, personally, just to be ready for that, yeah. that, that there wasn't, there wasn't going to be a break. You just kept right on rolling. And of course Thanksgiving gets done and then it's Christmas and, you know, and then, you know, maybe in January there was some downtime right. for us, but yeah, it took a lot. It was, a, it took a lot out of us. And, and I think it was, it was hard on, um, hard on, on the employees, but also hard on, on us as a family to yeah. not have that, that space after the intensity. Yeah. It's interesting how those things ebb and flow. Like for me now, I, as the, still the chief grower of, of this operation, I have to be extremely engaged in April and May. There, there are so many things you do in April and May that you only do one time a year. And if you screw it up, you've screwed it up. And, so I am really on and into early June. And then by July, mid-July especially, the, the crew, things are dialed in. Things are clicking along. There isn't a whole lot of new stuff going on. We're still planting plenty or whatever, but you know, carrots have already been planted six times. So we kind of got it figured out for the year, hopefully. And so <laughs> I tend to... I not have to be nearly as on and actually have time to sort of work on projects and stuff in July and August. And then we're so focused on, on storage crops now that September and October are very big months for us. 
And then personally, when we get to November and on through the winter, I'm not that involved in all the packing and shipping that we do that time of year. So I have time for projects again. And I think it's sort of the same for a lot of my management staff. We all have to be on board for certain times of the year when things are all hands on deck. And then other times of the year, like, like my main guy is, is going to be building this greenhouse all summer because we don't actually need him as part of our cropping thing. Whereas in April and May, he has to be fully engaged mentally and physically to get, you know, get everything done right. So it's nice to have, you know, the people who are going to be around forever, all of us like having times where we have to be totally involved in the production. Also having times when we're working on different projects. So it's nice to have that balance, um, where, you know, at certain times you have to, you actually have to do certain things on certain days. Other times it's more open to what makes sense and what you want to focus on. I think it's something about, about your scale of operation that I think is easy to overlook as one of the advantages of being the size that you are, that you have that ability to kind of flow in and out of your operation. Um, you know, to have, to have the times when it's your job to get the parsnips planted, but not be the one that has to be making sure that the parsnips get out the door every week in, in November, January, and February. Yeah, it's huge. And the, the counter to that is that the, you know, the overall responsibility always goes up, you know, there's always, as it gets bigger, there's more risk. You know, there's more risk of something terrible happening with an employee, be it a safety thing or a, uh, you know, whatever Th- things happen when you get enough people milling around each other. Um, the risk of, uh, you know, equipment breakdowns are sort of a constant reality of life and how to deal with them. Um, just making decisions about insurance and things like that become a, a significant part of life. Um, and I don't tend to enjoy some of those things so much, but I do enjoy what you just pointed out, which is that I don't have to be there washing and packing all the parsnips. Um, and I like the fact that they're being washed and packed. I, I check in, I notice things about them occasionally, but, um, there are people who are very tuned into that and they're having their own evolution with this farm or, or their career. And, um, sort of choosing the path they want to follow. And I, I'm on my own path and it's, uh, I, I don't, I really struggle to understand folks who sort of park themselves at a certain scale and continue to find joy and pleasure and creativity in that. I'm kind of envious of it actually, because obviously you could spend the rest of your life learning about how to, about parsnips like you really could you could devote your life to everything about parsnips or whatever it is you're focused on and just do a better and better or more and more creative or interesting job with that I'm just not wired that way I have to actually have significantly different things going on and uh, which leads to kind of a sprawling thing eventually but you know it's all I can't complain to anybody about other than myself, you know, and, and it's just, uh, sort of, uh, as these businesses are, they're sort of a reflection of people's personalities and you end up creating what you lead yourself to. And if you have a problem with it, you got to talk to yourself about it. (laughs) 
and figure out what to do. That's really good. <laughs> I like that. So, hey, I know you've you've also undergone another another evolution on the on the personal front lately. Yeah. Tell us about that and how that's going. Oh, it's great. Um, just just over two years ago, I met my wife Eloise. She's she's the brother of a longtime neighbor and friend. She's a sister. Sorry. That would be a bit odd if my wife was a brother. Um, but uh, and we have a nine-month-old baby, and I'm 43, so it was a long time coming, and uh, I'm thoroughly enjoying it. And she's from Quebec, and learning how to live in a different language and a different culture, and with a with a man, and all these things, and it's mostly going really well. And she's a little bit involved in the farm in different places like our farm stand, but not the goal is not for her to be fully immersed in the farm at all. She's a wildlife biologist and wants to get back to doing that kind of work. And um, so I think that's been healthy. I, I've had a previous relationship where we were both fully immersed in the farm and that became really hard. Um, <clears throat> so it's hard to uh, predict how this whole balance is going to work as time passes. But, uh, so far I really enjoyed the, uh, what it's brought to all of us. Congratulations on that. Yeah. That's thanks. Great. We also, we have, uh, and some of the key partners in the farm, we have, uh, twins about the same age and a three year old. So more and more of us are, there's kids kicking around now and, you know, that's leading to things like, you know, some people having to be home at five o'clock every day and, and not really work on the weekends. And it's occasionally challenging and, and, but it's, I think it's good overall for both the business and all the, all the personalities involved. I think it really forces some, you know, if if you, if you let it, it's got the opportunity to force you to have some discipline yeah, uh, and not just let the, not just let the farm do what the farm's going to do, but to actually start to, to exert some more control over it. <laughs> well, I mean, so often you go, you go to operations and you, and you can just sense that the owners and possibly a lot of the crew are just sort of endlessly working, just like working, too many hours without any sort of specific concept of what's enough or where to cut it off. And I just find that that leads to less getting done and not getting done as well. So we actually try to keep our crew hours pretty reasonable, like, like low fifties is sort of where we like to top things out. Um, 40 is tough. I mean, it's, it's hard to have somebody to be a key part of a farm who works 40 hours a week. Um, but I find that low fifties, um, works well. I mean, several of us, I I certainly work more than that and several of us do. Um, but that seems to be a level where people stay relatively fresh and they're yet are involved enough to be really engaged and aware of what's going on. And there's still a lot of time left in the world when you work 50 hours a week. So, yeah. All right. Well, Pete, so I'd like to, I'd like to pivot here and go to our lightning round with just a few questions that we'd like to ask all of our guests to wrap up the show. Yeah. So, um, so what's your favorite tool on the farm, Pete? If you had to, if you had to pick one. Um, I, we'd, we'd be lost without a time leader. We have a, we have a couple of lately time leaders. Um, 
they're absolutely key to our, our weed control program. Uh, literally, I have no idea what we would do without them. Um, I've never had an Einbach. I'd like to get one. I'd like to have actually a fleet of time leaders to do different things for different things. It's sort of been the program, but, uh, so you could have them adjusted in different ways. Yeah. And I'm just, I mean, I think there's a, there's a place for having, you know, six different actions. I mean, there's such an important key tool. For example, uh, three weeks ago, we sowed a whole bunch of cover crop and we sowed it really deep oats and peas. And we tried to time weed on top of that. And I thought it was working great, but we actually killed a significant amount of the cover crop, even though I was out there rooting around and thinking that we weren't. So I needed something with a lighter action to do that job. Right. Um, but on an organic vegetable farm of any scale, it, it is a super key tool. I remember a, a farmer that I worked with about 20 years ago when they, when they brought one onto their farm and, and he was just, he's like, wow, this is, where has this been all my life? Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. And it allows more efficient preparation of land too, because you can prep a bunch of land and then you're only improving it for the next two to three weeks as you time weed it regularly. Stale by stale bedding it and stale rooting out those it. weeds. You're actually, you know, you're killing weeds. You're working up your seed, your seed bed just gets nicer and nicer. It only lasts, you can't do it for months, you know, it only lasts so long, but, um, you know, I, I still have friends that like, I, I can't, they say to me, I can't imagine how I come up with enough time to get ahead on my bed making. And I say, I can't imagine making beds just as I'm ready to plant them. Like, you know, we make them in blocks and get ahead. And then we run out there with a the time leader, which is not only a great tool, it's a super fast tool to use. You yeah. know, hey, the faster you dry, the better it works. So it's not a big investment in resources to keep things time weeded. And, uh, I wish I knew how many miles this one we have has traveled this plant. It's unbelievable. <laughs> oh, the tines are still intact, huh? Oh, uh, we replace, uh, we, we spend a lot of money on tines every year and they only last so long, but, uh, it's, uh, it's, boy, has that paid for itself uh, 500 times over. <clears throat> All right. So, uh, so next question that we, we like to ask is what's the most challenging crop that you continue to grow? You know, we struggle with garlic and it's frustrating to me because every home gardener around here grows great garlic. Um, this year we're really paying attention to, we're doing some leaf tissue testing and trying to figure out what's going on. We've grown it in lots of different fields around here and, the garlic world, as you know, is booming. There's lots of potential to sell garlic and we always have pretty small garlic. So I think we're getting to figure it out, but that's certainly been one rhubarb as well. <laughs> we actually have pretty good demand for rhubarb and we've, I finally figured out we've just been overpicking it and not fertilizing it enough. So we put it in a new plantation and I have high hopes for it. But again, you can stumble upon any garden around here and they have a, a patch of rhubarb is, you know, six feet tall and just yep. <laughs> going crazy and I can't grow rhubarb. So, um, they, they just are both things that aren't super natural here for some reason. And I'm having to actually really focus on what the crops need. Um, but that's, you know, 
it's just a lesson on having to do your homework and do it right. Yeah. Even, even on, even on the stuff that seems like it should be simple. Yeah. I mean, you think rhubarb, you think you just put them out there and they grow, but we were, we were just picking them hard and we weren't putting enough fertility on and they just get tired. The home gardeners don't pick theirs typically. They make one pie and that, you know, that's what, you know, it's a couple of stocks and then they're done. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. And, and finally, if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would that be? Uh, go get a nice field. I, I started, it was a great learning experience. I started by clearing woods in my parents' land and building up soil and, um, I guess I wouldn't trade the experience for the world. And yet there were opportunities back then. If I, if my business had grown faster and sort of like, I see some, some of these new young folks now who just like show up and are able to tap into knowledge resources and financial resources that are available and just get set up and get going. And it's exciting for me to see how that infrastructure has improved so that people can do that. And we're in a bit of a land grab around here right now. We have a strong dairy economy. We have all these uh, um, new businesses going on around here. And if, if I'd been in a position to acquire land five years earlier, we could have acquired some really nice farmland for very little money. Um, so I think from a, looking at this as a, hopefully a multi-generational business, to have gotten going faster by getting some good land, you know, even just go leasing a nice field and getting going uh, would have put us in a better position. Um, and maybe, probably, I, you know, I never really worked for anybody else. So just spending a little bit of time working with somebody who really understood mechanical things, we kind of hacked our way to things like cultivation knowledge and we're really good at it now, but I could have sprung myself ahead pretty fast by going and interning on a couple places for a short periods of time even. Um, so, and there's places where you can do a lot yourself and you get a long way and whatever, but you can also save yourself a lot of wandering around in circles by just going to somebody who's good at something and learning from them. Great. Well, thanks Pete. This has been a really good, this has been a really interesting interview. I really appreciate yeah, you taking fun. the time here. So thank you very much. I'm going to get on your uh, podcast program and listen regularly. It's that it's the podcast app on your iPhone. So Sounds good. You, it's, it should be, should be easy. Thanks. So, Chris. Let me know when you're in Vermont next time. I'll do that. Take care, Pete. See you later. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 20 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast and that you can find the notes for this show at farmer to farmer podcast.com by looking on the episodes page or simply searching for Johnson. If you like what you hear, think about signing up for my newsletter, The Flying Rutabaga at farmer to farmer podcast.com or purplepitchfork.com. And that makes 20 episodes of the Farmer to Farmer podcast. I think that's pretty cool. Thank you to everyone who has taken the time to share this podcast with your friends and community, to the great guests who have given so generously of their time and knowledge to the show, to everyone who has taken the time to provide feedback and suggestions, and to the sponsors who support the show. You're awesome. And I'm so proud to be a part of this community. Thank you so much. Keep weathering the weather and keep the tractor running. <laughs> <laughs>